first of two sermons, really, that we will um, unpack the flood narrative, the narrative of Noah. Uh, so really, this, this passage that we're, we're covering today, we're actually covering about three chapters of Genesis. We only have time to read one of those chapters. And, um, and so, but next week, we will finish this uh, particular narrative when we finish up the story about Noah. And so, um, I don't know where you are in your Olympic watching um, passion, but for us, it's a thing that we look forward to every two years, or uh, for the last couple of years, it's been back-to-back, which is nice. Um, I don't know how you uh, envision or how you watch, or if you're an Olympic watcher, but we are. We stop everything. We don't really watch anything else uh, during this time of the year. We just watch the Olympics because the drama is too much to ignore for us. So like this week, we watched The Flying Tomato. Uh, You know who The Flying Tomato is? Anybody know who The Flying Tomato is? His name is Sean White. Sean White finished his last uh, snowboarding half-pipe run. He, he, he didn't finish it. He actually wrecked, but he got done, and he's crying, and he's weeping, and like he's just like, he's so grateful to have had the ride that he's had since he was a teenager. And on the other end of things, of this great story career of gold after gold after gold, is another girl that you, you watch, and you just go, oh my gosh, are my kids watching how painful even the best athletes um, have to go through. With her name is Michaela Schifrin, right? Michaela DNF'd, right? She did not finish her two best events, and she was the favorite for gold on two events. And she didn't even get through the first couple of gates on her slalom run until she skied over. Did anybody else see this? She skied over, and she sat on the side of the hill to the point where I eventually went and said, she needs to be an adult and get off the hill. Because she was, she was, she was there, what they said was for 20 minutes now you go okay what's the big deal well she's there for 20 minutes and she said I was trying to figure out my life I was trying to discern like what can I trust anymore because there's nothing trustworthy in her life as she sits there on the hill for 20 minutes no one else is going down the hill because they have to wait for her to get off the hill for 20 minutes she's trying to figure out life and I don't know about you but if you've ever prepared for a long time for something and then it doesn't turn out the way that you had hoped, if you think four years of Olympic training is something, can you imagine what it would have been like for Noah and his family and his sons and his daughter-in-laws to see what's happening with the world? And I think there's this hidden disappointment in this passage that really, as you look through it, um, I think it's with the daughter-in-laws. Uh, Like Noah hears from God, which if you've ever heard from God is like, there's enough adrenaline in 30 milliseconds to last you a lifetime with that. His sons are his sons, but his daughter-in-laws had families. His daughter-in-laws watched probably, we don't know, this is his conjecture, but probably watched their families die in the judgment of the world. If you can imagine the disappointment, you can imagine what's going on in the hull of the ark, the conversations they're having. I want to invite us to have some of those types of conversations today because I think just like Michaela Schifrin was was absolutely stunned by her own performance, I think we also are stunned by our own performance in life. And I just wonder, what, what is the differentiation in that moment for a Christian? I don't know if Michaela Schifrin is a believer or not. She may be. I don't know. But let's just say she's not for the sake of argument. What makes her disappointment on the side of the hill different than a Christian in that moment? 
What makes her thought process, the things that she's processing in all of life, all of her training, but she didn't say just all of her training, it was everything, I'm processing my entire life in these moments on the side of the hill with great disappointment. What makes a Christian process differently? It's not the amount of disappointment, that is the same. It's not the mistakes, we make just as many mistakes and sin uh, just as much as everybody else. What makes it distinctly Christian is that we have a hope that our God, our good shepherd, is perhaps allowing for disappointment and difficulty in our lives to feed us and lead us into greener pastures. That's what a Christian processes differently. And I pray that's exactly the kind of processing that we're doing as we read about really something very difficult. One of the most difficult passages that probably I could preach. All weekend, I tried to find funny ways to make this lighter. You can't. It is the judgment of all humanity except for eight people. And that is something that, that should cause us deep grief when we start thinking about that's probably, maybe we don't make that trip. Maybe we're not named Noah. Maybe we're not the righteous ones. Maybe we're like everybody else. It's tough to stomach that type of thinking, but it is the type of thinking that I think we're already thinking. It's just sermons like this and passages like this bring it to the forefront, and now we've got to deal with it. We can't push it past busyness. We can't push it past other priorities. Now it's here. It's front and center. And now what are we going to do with a God that floods the whole earth and saves eight people? Will we love that God? Will we trust that God? Will we follow that God? When our friends go, hey, dude, you're like, number one, rainbows and, and, and giraffes and lions. Are we really supposed to believe all this? Well, Jesus believed it. He refers to the time of Noah. Isaiah believed it. He refers to the days of Noah. Peter believed it. When he refers to the, the, the judgment that came at Noah's time, they all believed it. It's real. It's true. But I would just invite you into the whole of the ark as they're having these conversations. They're having dibs. On, like They're probably taking dibs on who gets to take care of the lion or the bear or the koala. Like I'll go with koala even though I've heard they're mean. Um, they're like, if, do you wonder if the mosquitoes uh, bit anyone? Because I do. Because if you did, they're probably risking their life. And like, then you slap, and then Noah's like, hey, man, you can't slap the mosquitoes. they got to survive this thing. There's all sorts of things that I'm thinking about in the whole of the ark as I think about like, the conversations they're having. Because I'll bet you, and I don't know this, but I'll bet you one of those daughter-in-laws looked at Noah and said, so your God just killed my whole family, and I'm supposed to follow him? Your God just did something unimaginable. And I'm supposed to just get off the ark and be cool with it because you said so, Noah? I think that's a deep question in a lot of our hearts. When our dreams don't come to fruition, when we, we, we are victims of, 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 of all sorts of demonic things. Because you've got to think, that's what's going on in the world. That is rising up in all of us, and I, I just think that today's text is going to help us understand the kind of God that Noah explained to his daughter-in-laws. The kind of God that his sons had opportunity to follow and believe once they got off of the ark. Will we follow that God that just, just I mean, really takes sin really seriously? We'll get to that point. So today's text is riddled with all sorts of rabbits to chase that I'm just going to mention but not chase. Is that okay? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go, yeah, I see that rabbit, mm -hmm, and I see that rabbit. Like the historicity of the flood. Almost every ancient culture has some sort of uh, documented understanding of the flood. The most 
famous one is uh, the Gilgamesh epic. I'm not going to talk about it. Just want to mention it to know I understand that there's a historicity and there's also controversy with that. Um, so if you want to dig into that, you should read a National Geographic. You should do a Google search, whatever it may be. There's historicity here, though, that there are other cultures that have a flood narrative. Therefore, I think um, solidifying this is a real true story. Um, there's a question like, is this how, how dinosaurs became extinct? That's a question. That they couldn't survive with the new oxygen levels after the flood. That's a question. We don't know. Um, I would wonder why mosquitoes were even brought on the ark, but they were being obedient, so as the Lord, this is, he's mysterious. But I want to focus really on what could have been, again, Noah's answers to some of those questions. And I don't know what kind of questions you ask or what you're asking these days, what's causing you to ask those questions. But I'm going to, I'm going to bet you, you are not the first to ask those questions, and you are not alone in asking them. The flood narrative beckons us Beyond the storybook drawings of a fluffy lion and a nice inviting giraffe and a lovely rainbow at the end of it, and they're all sitting on the edge of the ark, oh, just waiting for the flood to end. It beckons us beyond the storybooks and into the heart of really what's going on. These invitations on what kind of God does these types of things. And the answer is found here in the text so here's some answers, right? I think that we're asking some questions. Like one of the questions I think that we're asking is what kind of God does this? And why is it that God would do this? And my first answer to you as we get into this, you're not going to like it. Big surprise. But God does whatever he wants. God does whatever he wants. That, that's really the first answer in this. Could he have done it a different way? Could he have spared these people? Could he have, could he have uh, brought unto them a herald of the good news? Well, the Bible says in the New Testament that's exactly what Noah was. He was a herald of righteousness in his obedience. And through his obedience, he condemned the generation that they looked at him for what could have been 100 to 120 years of him building this ark. It's a long time, y'all. That is a long time of obedience. But our God does whatever he wants. The theological term for that is God's sovereignty. And I'll just throw this definition before you. It's not really probably found in a theological uh, uh, book, but here it is. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, for the reasons that he wants. He is subject to no one. He governs his creation according to his purposes, according to his character, and for his own glory. So we, are, we have all experienced moments in our lives of deep disappointment. We have all tried to figure out what God is up to in those moments. And we have to trust something. But when I say that, that God is sovereign, he does whatever he wants, whenever he wants, why he, ever, why he wants, and he's subject to no one, what is your reaction to that? Do you recoil from that God, or do you find great comfort and rest in that God? See, one of the rabbits that I'm not going to chase, but I'm just going to mention, is that we as Houstonians know what it's like to go through floods, do we not? Just uh, four and a half years ago, we went through a historic flood, and it was unprecedented until you look at the Bible and you realize it wasn't unprecedented. It actually has happened before. But we like the word unprecedented these days. 
right? So we see, well, I don't know about you, but like during Harvey, I remember sitting in my front yard, and my front yard, uh, uh, it looks out towards a park where there's a levee, and I remember it raining, and my son's name is Moses, and we went over to the levee, and I gave him an umbrella, and I said, Moses, you got to hold your staff up, brother, and tell the water to stop. And so he did it because he was really young back then, and he's just he's asking the water to stop. It didn't stop, although it did stop there. But I just remember thinking, like, thank God for whoever built that levee, even though we were all mad about it in our neighborhood, because it would it would it would it would have caused all kinds of issues. So I was really grateful for that. Um, I was also thinking, will my decision to not get flood insurance ruin me? Turns out, no, in that particular storm. But I just remember thinking like a, a deep peace washing over me in those moments when I'm out on the levee wondering if Jones Creek is going to flood me and all my neighbors and what that's going to look like. I remember looking out and going, what is going to happen in these next few days? And going, man, it will not quit raining. And it was only three days. The flood of Noah was 40 days and 40 nights. I couldn't handle it for three and yet there was a deep peace that was washing over me in those moments. And what was the deep peace? It came from Psalm 29, 10. And it said this. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. If he does whatever he wants, he had better be over it. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The flood that he's talking about, David's talking about in Psalm 29, is the flood. There's no other flood that he's talking about when he talks about the flood. Way worse than Harvey ever dreamed of being. A universal, worldwide flood where the Bible is very clear. It covered the mountains by about 23 feet. The highest mountains that you could find, the Himalayas, was higher than that by 23 feet. Very clear on what was going on. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. You see, if I lose everything, our God sits enthroned over it all. I have thought this many times, and I would invite you to think about the same things. I don't know how people get through life without Jesus at the center. I don't know how, if you, if you do not have Jesus at the center, I don't know how your marriage makes it. I don't know how you parent. I don't know how you do work. I I. I'm not saying that like a, I'm saying that because I literally don't know how anymore, but also compassionately, I don't know how you do it. You are stronger or, or, or something more than me because nothing makes sense if Jesus is not the center to me and to the scriptures. But I also think not only like how do Christians do it without Jesus at the center, how do non-Christians do it without Jesus at the center, but I also wonder how do Christians do it without a supreme big God, sovereign over all things. I have no idea how Christians can do life with the sufferings that we endure, with the difficulties and the disappointments that we have, without a God, a king, enthroned over it all. And I think that we don't like that because that puts him in a position of allowing evil, or perhaps like Noah, dispensing disaster for the sake of good we don't we're not comfortable with the answers of those types of questions but there is a deep rest that comes with maybe you don't have all the the, the nice bowed up answers to all of that 
There's deeper rest to know. Like God is inviting us to trust him beyond what we can explain, beyond what we can understand. His ways are higher than our ways, right? That's what the Isaiah talks about. So I don't know about you, but you might be thinking like, man, I'm just going to protest this whole thing. I don't like the kind of God that does this types of thing. But like, could God have done it a, a whole other way? Yeah, yeah, he could have, but he didn't. Could God have done that thing in your life differently? Yep. But he didn't. So what kind of God allows that kind of pain, whatever it may be, disappointment, destruction, depression, darkness, what kind of God allows that type of thing? And when there are no answers for me, when there are no answers in your life, I will guide you, as, as one of your pastors, I will guide you into three truths. Because the scriptures guide us into these three truths. Number one, God is good. There is no darkness in him at all. God is good. The other thing is, God is powerful. This is not happening outside of his strong hand. He sits enthroned over the whole earth's flood. He certainly sits enthroned over our local floods. And I'm not talking about Harvey. I'm talking about whatever happened this week. He sits enthroned. He's good. He's powerful. And oh yeah, He's wise. He is the fount of all wisdom. We will never know until we get to see him face to face. And even then, we might have an eternity to figure out what he's been up to all this time. We may never know the wisdom behind the decisions that he makes over the types of losses that we endure over time. We may never know that, but we have to trust the character of God as revealed in the scriptures that he's good. He's above it all. He's powerful and he is wise. He knows exactly what I need. This week we had foundation work done in my home. Super fun. Really good time. Uh, most money I've spent besides buying a home and a car. And, um, and, and the whole time I'm sitting, I'm like, Lord, you could have prevented this. You could have told us that this was here. You could have revealed it in an inspection report. We've only been here for almost five years. You knew, you knew. And I could just get on and on and on about like, oh, Lord, you could have spared me. And then I realized maybe it's not about me. Maybe he was sparing the previous owners that this would have done heinous harm to their family. Maybe he's sparing the future owners of this home that they couldn't handle this financially. But we could, so we, we were like, okay, well, it's not my favorite thing to spend money on. But God knew exactly where we were and what we needed and that we would be the people to take care of this problem. By the way, you live on basically a bunch of clay and mud, so you'll probably be in this too. So let me invite you into trusting. God knows exactly what repairs or difficulties, whatever it may be, you're going to run into. And he puts you in that position, and he didn't spare you of all of that trouble for a purpose. What's the purpose? Leads me to my second answer to a question that I think we're asking. What kind of God does all of this? Why would he do all of this? Well, the Bible is again clear. If you look at what's going on in all of this, Verse 5 and verse 11, you see what God's doing. Verse 5, it says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention, some intentions? No, no. Every intention, every motive, 
Every, every, every thought, everything that drove the thoughts of our heart was only evil continually. You can't get more detailed than that. There's no caveat. Well, maybe there were some people that were good. No, no. Every intention of their thought was only evil continually. Hmm. Verse 11, he goes on to say that that was not enough. Now the earth was corrupt. See, these, these, these people, us, humanity, had become so corrupt. Now the earth was corrupt over what could have been generations of our stewardship under our, our stewardship. It's now the whole earth is corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Why is God doing this? Well, I think it's this answer, and I'm going to camp out in this particular answer, and that is this, that, that our holiness matters. When's the last time you had a conversation about your holiness? Probably had all kinds of conversations about what you're going to do with your life, how skilled or unskilled you were to do that thing. Right now, teachers are probably being asked if they're going to enter back into their place of work and, and they're trying to figure out like I don't know what's going on in your house what's going on in my house like what am I going to do with my life if I don't teach and so like there's just all this thought process of like competence and skill set and calling what about holiness what about the kind of person that God wants to form in you no matter what you end up doing with your job you see, holiness matters. If you look at, again, how this mess started is because the whole society was only evil all the time. They were unholy. God saw it and he grieved. He grieved. You see, if you're in this room and you think, man, what kind of angry God is in the Old Testament? A grieving God that wishes that we would just take our holiness as serious as he does. He's not angry. He's grieving. He's got to do something. He can't tolerate it because he's holy. You think about, well, how holy is he? Well, I will borrow here. I will borrow from a man by the name of Jerry Bridges. He wrote in a book called The Transforming, Transforming Power of the Gospel. Uh, he, he quotes a guy by the name of George Smeaton. George Smeaton talks about this when it talks about holiness, God's holiness. And he says about our sin offending God, George Smeaton says this, the guilt of the offense is proportional to the greatness, the moral excellence, and the glory of him against whom the offense is committed and who made us for loyal obedience to himself. You guys catching all that? Do I need to read it again? Read it again. Thank you for giving me that. I appreciate that feedback. The guilt of the offense. How, how, how guilty am I? How unholy really am I with these little bitty uh, pecadillos? Little bitty sins for the gringos in the house, that's me. <laughs> the guilt of the offense is proportional not to the amount of your sin. The greatness, the moral excellence, and the glory of him against whom the offense is committed. I'm on my tippy toes here now, y'all is committed and who made us for loyal obedience to himself. Now, Bridges go on to explain, goes on to explain George Smeaton's quote because it's difficult to understand, but he says this, suppose you're of modest means and you buy a rug and you think, man, I just spent all kinds of money, it's $300 on this rug, and you invite me over for your Super Bowl party. 
and I spill all sorts of red Fanta all over your rug, what's going to happen with that rug? I brought the Fanta, by the way, because Moses likes the Fanta. If I spill that Fanta all over your rug, what's going to happen? It's ruined. Okay, maybe you're like, I can get the Fanta out. All right, how about ink? Black ink. I bring over some kind of pen, and I spill black ink all over your rug. The rug is ruined. Now, suppose you are of wealthy means, and you invite me over, not for a Super Bowl party because you're probably above those things, but you invite me over for something else, and it's a $30,000 Persian rug, and I spill the same Fanta, or I spill the same ink on that rug, which offense is greater? Wait for that feedback. Come on. <laughs> the offense is the same, but you're thinking to yourself, Man, that Persian rug, though. You're not thinking about that $300 Bed Bath & Beyond rug anymore. You're thinking about that Persian rug, that one-of-a-kind $30,000 Persian rug. Why are you thinking about that one? The reason is, is because it's a far greater worth. The sin was the same. But the thing that you messed up was worth way more. How much more is our sin against an immeasurably worthy God? Our little peccadillos still ruin his creation. And it's worth way more than 30 grand. And Jerry Bridges go on to say, that is why our sin, be it ever so small in our eyes, is always an abomination to God. And if an ink stain is an abomination on a rug, what is a society composed of ink supposed to do and what is a God who sees the entire society composed of sin what is he supposed to do so if you're in this room and you think of the flood and you go I mean, what kind of a God would destroy the all of humanity I would just go what kind of a God would just sit by and let it continue on you see we want to emphasize God's love and mercy but let us not also forget his holiness. Jehovah Rapha, my healer. Jehovah, Rapha, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. I'm going to bet you one you haven't journaled about. Jehovah Kana, a jealous God. See, in Exodus, he tells his people to rid, rid the country of idols. Because I am Jehovah Kana. I am jealous. My name is jealous. I care about your holiness. Get rid of everything that's going to lead you astray. I care about your holiness more than you could ever imagine. And so you'll start to read in Deuteronomy that he's going to purge the evil from among Israel. And that is a constant fight to today. That he values our holiness so much that he'll let our dreams get smashed to the earth just like Michaela Schifrin so that he can birth something new in us. Wash us clean, O oh Lord. Let us help us see the beauty of your holiness that we may live holy lives. The flood shows that our obedience, our pursuit of holiness matters. We know that because you look at the kind of God, the kind of guy that Noah was. If you look at this, look, look at the kind of 
things that Noah did. You notice that Noah never talks in this narrative. He never barters with God. You never hear him talking until the end. What you do see Noah doing, the character that God wants to help us see, 622 of Genesis. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If you keep going in the Bible, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 5, God tells him to do more things. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. If you keep going all the way into Genesis chapter 8, verse 16, uh, then uh, God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. And then you find at the end, they go out. Everything that God commanded Noah to do, he did. Why? Because he was righteous. He was obedient to God. He cared about the kind of character that God was forming in him, even as the world literally drowned around him. And he says right here, and I won't pull it up, but Hebrews 11 says that his obedience, his pursuit of holiness condemned the world around him And I will say this, that as God calls you to do things, your pursuit of holiness will condemn the people around you. You will not get a lot of fanfare as you pursue holiness. You're not going to get a lot of people around you being like, dude, so glad that you overcame that sin. No, what you're going to find is that when you overcome those things by God's grace, what it does is it condemns those people and they look at you with condemnation. Are you holier than thou now? Oh you, got, oh, you got baptized, so you better than me? These are all things that I've heard over life. No, 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 I'm better than you. Noah wasn't better than everybody else. He sinned just like everybody else. But what he did was he pursued God in the midst of his sin. He lived a life of repentance and faith. That's the call for all of us as we would follow Jesus. God has probably told you to do some crazy things. I hope he has. Like, I hope you get to tell stories in heaven that are just, like, just crazy. Instead of just being the hearer of those stories in heaven, when somebody else did something crazy, God's calling you to do something crazy. It doesn't matter whether or not you're doing it. Or maybe he's, doing, he's asking you to do something small, and no one ever notices. That's probably where your character is going to get formed more than when everybody f- figures out what you're up to. It's in those small, simple moments that God is forming something in you. And whether or not we become more holy is dependent upon literally our obedience. I said the word, and I'm going to explain it a couple of different ways. Two different people, I think, that are in this room that need to hear this word. The first kind of person is the person that has attended church for a long time. Now, notice how I'm describing you. You have attended church for a long time. But your life does not say that you care much about your holiness or about God's holiness. You excuse sin by saying, well, I mean, God, God loves me no matter what. But I want to, you to understand that the New Testament has a word for you. And I want to read a passage, and I want you to figure out if you can figure out what that word is. If you don't care about obedience in here, and you've been coming to church for a long time, I want us to read 1 John 2, verses 4 through 6. For the person that presumes upon God's grace... 1 John 2, 4 through 6 should come on the screen. Is it on there? Yes. Now, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Did you catch the word? For those that presume upon God's grace and do not care about obedience, did you catch the word? Go ahead, talk back to me. What was the word? Y'all are judgmental. Man, y'all are judgmental. Liar. It's God's word telling us, waking us up. Let us not become liars, saying one thing and doing another. Now, I would categorize that person, I think the Bible would categorize that person more fully in the book of 1 John as a non-believer. But let's just say you're a believer. Let's say you also have that attitude of you're a genuine follower of Jesus. And doggone it, I'm in the ark. I'm safe. God has brought me in and I'm good to go. But you still don't much care about obedience. I would never say you're a non-believer, but there is question. Jesus, I want you to listen to Jesus' words in John 14. That yes, we are safe in the ark of God, but God wants more than mere surviving. He wants us to thrive in intimacy. And he says this in his last instruction to his disciples before he's betrayed, beaten, killed, and resurrection. John 14, 21. He's talking about how is it that we live almost right before the abide part, like remain in me, abide in me. Don't you got bear fruit, then you got to abide in the vine. Right before that, he says this, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Now, Jesus' explanation is a little bit more palatable than John's, but he's saying the same thing. In other words, if you have my commandments and you don't obey, you don't love me. You know me. There's no affection here. We continue to read. Look at the way that God has created intimacy with himself. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Okay, so if I love Jesus by obedience, and that proves that I am loved by the Father, and listen, I will love him and manifest myself to him. This word in the Greek is an unzipping of your soul to another. We will not understand the intimacy that comes with knowing Jesus without obedience. You may be safe in salvation. You may, be say, you may say, I'm a believer, but you will never understand his heart. You will never, never have that thriving relationship with him if you constantly put obedience to the side. If you constantly put your holiness, your formation unto Jesus to the side. It will that's the way God has put it. I will, if you do these things, if you, you, look, you don't have to prove yourself to me. I love you no matter what if you're a believer. But for you believers that think obedience is just optional, you will never experience God the way that he, have, he wants to experience you. You will never experience God the way that he wants you to experience him, rather. It will always be a dry desert wondering why it is that God seems so distant. It's because we have not taken our holiness, our obedience to him seriously. And he has not manifested himself as a result. Our holiness matters, not just for surviving judgment, but also for enjoying Jesus. For 120 years, Noah was obedient. He's not asking you to be obedient for that long. And if he is, like, awesome, you live that long? I want a postcard. I don't know how that works. 
But like he is asking you, calling you, compelling you to take your holiness as serious as he takes your holiness. We read all this and we understand all this and we have to ask ourselves, like, what is God up to? And through Genesis, I'm just going to constantly remind us of that, that scarlet thread of redemption because though God has flooded the earth, God's grace is greater. It's greater than the judgment that we see. The flood did not wash away the tendency for humans to sin. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20 and 21 then Noah built an altar to the Lord. Oh, he took his worship seriously and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when that, that fragrant aroma, which the New Testament calls our prayers, intimacy with God, when that fragrant aroma, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and it went up to heaven, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The flood didn't wash away original sin. Baptism doesn't wash away original sin. It's still there. But God has so intended to love us in spite of our sin to show us the kind of God that he truly is. God's promise of renewal and redemption remain. The story of Noah and the ark isn't contained to Genesis. The flood narrative propels forward into the prophets. When Isaiah uses the flood narrative in, Gen in Isaiah 54, and he says, man, like God's about to put you into exile. It's going to be awful for everybody. But in the days of Noah, just as in the days of Noah, his steadfast love will remain. It propels forward into the New Testament where the emphasis is on salvation and not on judgment. If you remember Genesis 3.15 that pointed forward to a Redeemer who will crush the serpent, the flood story leaves us wondering, is that Redeemer going to be Noah? And next week's sermon tells you no. You want to read ahead? Go ahead and read Genesis 9. Will it be Noah? No, it will not be Noah. The ark points forward past Noah to God's son. In the story of Noah and the flood, God appointed through a covenant that Noah and his family would enter into the ark. They obeyed God by faith, step by step, for what could have been 120 years until God's judgment came upon the earth, from which they were saved. And in their time on the ark, God provided for them. You want to really do a deep dive on this? Go to Gen like Genesis 7, 16, where the Lord shut them in. You really think about the terror and the horror that was going on in the waters. The Lord shut them in, protected Noah and his family from everyone else trying to get on the ark. He protected them from judgment, from, from, from getting caught up into, into probably more mercy in that moment than God wanted them to have. He, he shuts them in. He preserves them until the recreation of the world, which we'll look at next week. And can you see how this same ark points to the true and better ark in Jesus? That he appoints us by a new and better covenant to enter into him where he preserves, he provides for us, and he shuts us in away from ultimate judgment because he took it. And he does that until he will recreate the earth once more. So, I would ask you, you've been in church for a long time, 
You don't care about obedience. You don't care about holiness. You don't care about this God that, whose name is jealous for you. To get rid of all the things. I am going to ask you, because I think the text compels us to ask, will you enter into the ark? Will you come into the ark of God and find your ultimate rest there? See, there's a little nugget of truth that I can't get into, but Noah's name means rest. There is this poetic beauty being shown to us that in the ark not the ark of Noah but in the true and better ark of Jesus there is true rest for us will you enter into that ark will you stay in the ark even amidst confusion and less glorious work than you'd hoped for I mean I don't know what that work was like on the ark but I'll bet it was not glorious will you enter into that kind of life where you will just plow in hope steady obedience for your formation unto Jesus and will you do it with a far greater reward than you ever imagined will you enter into the ark will you trust in Jesus if you've never trusted in Jesus I mean today is the day of salvation I don't do this very often but I feel compelled if you are a non-believer today's the day come and talk I'm not one to be like, hey, let's pray the prayer and now you're in. No, no, let, let just understand like, what the Spirit's doing in you. It's important, the most important thing that can ever happen. And if you're a believer, if you're in the ark, what will cause you to enjoy that time? It's your obedience. It's your fellowship. It's your intimacy. It's your prayer. It's, it's all the basic things that you learned long ago. Will we stay the course Steady our souls with our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven who sent the flood also sent the Son. The Son to take our judgment as Eddie prayed earlier. Because we were people that could care less about holiness. We did life our own way. We served ourselves for many years. Sometimes we still do. And Lord, your grace is greater than our selfishness and our desire to make life easier. Isn't that what drives most of our sins? We just need a little relief. A relief from my disappointment. A little relief from... From work, man, the terrible boss, he, he forgot I was human. He just wants me to just keep cranking it out. I need a relief from, from my, my kids who just will not repent. They keep running and they keep running. And I just, I wonder, what are you up to, Lord? I gotta, I gotta, you're not my hope right now. I got to get some relief somewhere else. same God who flooded the earth grieved before he did it. So now we know that you grieve over our hearts that are so quick to wander from you. So Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. Draw us near by your power. Open our eyes to see the worth of your son Jesus. What, what is this going to cost me? Uh, it doesn't matter. He's holy. And I should die right now, but he keeps me alive. And for that, I'll live and love him forever. Help us see your immeasurable worth. 
and the infinite cost that it came, that it cost you on the cross. Encourage us, Holy Spirit, by this song, by one another, by the truth of your scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.